Welcome to Encouraging Change, a podcast that explores the relationship between motivational interviewing and peer recovery support. Your hosts, Laura Saunders and Chris Kelly, will engage in a conversation that combines their professions and passions, the spirit of motivational interviewing, and the power of peer support. Laura is a Wisconsin State Project Manager for the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, and a seasoned motivational interviewing trainer. Chris is a project manager for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and an expert on peer recovery support services. So thank you for joining us today and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode nine of Encouraging Change. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how peer recovery support providers can support, assist, come alongside a recovery in crisis. We're really fortunate today to have a special guest, our first guest on our podcast, Stephanie Jack. Stephanie, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm glad Good. to be on with you all. Good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Would you just take a couple moments or a couple minutes to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about where you're from and what you do? Sure. My name is Stephanie Jack and I'm from Houston, Texas. And I work as respite team lead at a peer run crisis respite here in Houston. Uh, I'm at the Peers for Hope House, and we opened the respite in September 2016, and we're the only one in the state, and I've been there ever since. I started there as a peer bridger and a couple of years ago became team lead, and it's also been my first peer job. I kind of came to peer support following my own mental health crisis back in 2016. 2012, 2013, I knew that I wanted to work in peer support. When I learned about it, it made sense to me. And I thought I could have used one of me when I was going through uh, my stuff. And, uh, but I didn't know about peer support. Yeah, it, it made sense to me. And when I learned about the respite and, and applied for the job, it, it was absolutely, I thought, where I wanted to be. I wasn't exactly sure what we would be doing, but I felt like it would be good work. And it made sense to me in terms of being able to offer an alternative to hospitalization for people going through a mental health crisis. When I went through my crisis uh, at the height of it, I wasn't hospitalized. I was at home. But even so, I could have used a plan for going through it at home where I could have told people how to support me and help me and that sort of thing. So the idea that I would get to work someplace and possibly get to work alongside people and help them was, was the draw, still is the draw. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. So you really do have that personal lived experience of experiencing crisis and knowing mm -hmm. what, you'd, what you would have liked to have had happen with you. And now it's that you get to go be the change agent to bring those things to others. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We've spent some time on previous conversations just talking about the role of peers in, in helping support people in crisis. And Laura and I 
initially when this topic came up had contemplated, is there a place for motivational interviewing in this space and where does it fit and, and what would that look like? And when you and I spoke previously, a couple things that stood out to me from our conversation, some statements you made around sharing risk and listening differently. And so mm -hmm. I just wonder from you, if you could help tell our listeners, what do you see as the role of peer supporters when we're working with somebody in crisis, um, working in a respite center or a hospital setting, or even within a, a recovery community center? How do you see peers working with people in those roles? Mm. I think for me, I, one of the first things that I had to kind of wrap my mind around was the idea that crisis, there's no one size fits all. It looks different from person to person. And certainly something that we've seen at the respite is crisis goes beyond just what you think in terms of a person's mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. So for example, a lot of the people that we work with are, you know, living unsheltered. So housing is their primary crisis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they are, these individuals are being discharged from psychiatric, you know, emergency rooms or hospitals discharged to us because they can't, you know, be discharged to the streets. And so they're discharged to us, but we're respite and not uh, a shelter, even though we, you know, provide shelter, but that's not our primary role. So that has been challenging from the start to to kind of be prepared to think, okay, I'm just going to focus on mental health crisis, but in reality, that's not what's driving this person right now. The fact that they have nowhere to go, that's what's impacting their mental health more than anything. So I think that kind of was my first, what first kind of came for me was, okay, I've got to open my mind to what crisis can look like. I think what's helpful to me is looking at it at, on the spectrum of wellness, mm -hmm. that at any point in time, any one of us can be experiencing uh, a crisis, whatever that looks like for us. I think right now we're all going through this crisis, this pandemic, and imagine if that on top of whatever your mental health or substance use challenges might be and financial impact of this on that would be. And if there are, you know, racial disparities and, you know, everything is just all these layers. It's not an easy, you know, one, two thing that, oh, now the person is in crisis. It looks differently from each person to person and how we all respond as peers changes from person to person because too, we've got our own stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that was helpful to me was the idea of viewing crisis as an opportunity, that even this horrible thing that is happening to me, that I would, I would rather anything else be happening but this, that somehow this might be an opportunity for me to either change my life or grow past this hurt or trauma, or keep surviving in spite of this trauma, kind of fostering this idea of resilience, 
Okay. Not to minimize what anyone is going through, just to say, man, the fact that you are still standing, that's that's a testament to you with everything that you're sharing that you have gone through and you're sharing that with me. That's let's not let's not move past the fact that you you pulled up something to be able to withstand this. And so I think peers can bring that perspective to where we see the person and not just the distress, not just, not only the symptoms, not only the the brokenness that people are, are coming to, are coming to us with that they, that they might be experiencing. So I think peers are in a unique position where we, we can do that. We can be with, and one of the things that I learned from intentional peer support training is the idea of listening differently. I'm hearing the person, I'm hearing what they're saying, and I'm also listening for maybe what's not being said, or I'm listening for, I hear the pain behind the statement of, I just want this to end. I want this to stop already. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily meaning they want to take their own lives. They just want this horrible pain to stop. And if I listen for that, maybe I'll have a way to offer something to that person, or maybe, maybe just the listening is what I can offer. Something I share with my staff is don't minimize the power of listening. That's it's powerful. You don't have to run around and be doing a bunch of stuff, hustling for your worth, like Brene Brown says. You can just listen. Listening counts because you may be bearing witness to something this person hasn't shared with anybody before. Yeah. So I, I think peers can play that role, definitely. To be there to listen differently and to be there to to be there to be support. Yeah, when I really appreciate you bringing up the crisis was on the path to wellness. Yeah, I know for me personally, my life wouldn't be where it is now if I hadn't gone through that. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not recommending it for everybody to run out and get a crisis, <laughs> but I mean, if, if you're gonna have one, you know, how do I make this? pain into my, a purpose. How can I make sense of this? How can I make meaning of this? Yeah. And I think if we can help people explore that in their own time. I mean, you can't introduce that to, oh, your crisis is an opportunity. Well, not in that moment. They may not be feeling that. I, I don't get to declare your crisis is your opportunity. That person has to get there. When I'm able to, to do that, it can be a powerful, life-changing moment. Yeah. Or series of moments. Yeah. I find that like one of the beautiful things that we bring as peer supporters to the table is that Mm. we found some connection and purpose to what could quite possibly be the worst moments of our lives. And so we bring that 100% that empathy and understanding to the table without, like you said, we don't want to, um, push that agenda, but we know it mm-hmm. in our hearts and sometimes knowing it is just allows us to listen differently. Well, and I think you're bringing up some really great points too around the skills and knowledge that peers rely on when working with recoveries, experiencing a crisis. So there's something maybe intuitive that we bring because of our lived experience and something, I think you called it peering. So we can do <laughs> we're peering. It's it's making yes. it a, a verb, which I love. And um, so maybe what brought us to this table was this intuitive 
I wish I could change or alter or be different around the way things happened for me. And we can bring that mm. into a professional setting. In your opinion and in your work, what skills and knowledge do we rely on as peers when working with somebody in a crisis? Mm. Thank you for asking that question because I think a lot of times depending on our different workplaces, we we are told to go, peer is a verb, go peer them. I mean, I think they have the same kind of story you do. And it's like, wait a minute, it's more, more than that. And even in a crisis situation, especially, there are things that, there are things that we need to know. So for one, it might start with being very familiar with whatever your workplace's protocols are around safety and suicide and whatever you need to know for your particular workplace, being familiar with that and not, well, for us, especially uh, a one-time thing that you kind of do on a, you know, annual training basis, it's something that can really be a part of ongoing conversations during supervision to be very clear, you know, hey, when we see this sort of situation, what may kick in? Uh, At what point does duty to report something kick in? At what point, who do I call when this person is in distress? And actually describing what distress means, what that looks like. Is it a person that is doing self-harm? Is it when a person begins destroying property? Is it when a person is under the influence? I mean, each workplace I'm sure spells out what it is that employees need to be aware of before other measures kick in that say, hey, we may need to help this person get to a different level of care or they need something more than what we are offering right now as peer supporters. So knowing what your agency or your organization's policies and and procedures are, I think another skill that's helpful is one that we hear all the time, but it really is about boundaries. What are my personal limits and can I negotiate my boundaries? Can I, can I set those limits so that maybe it's not with every person I sit down with, I'm going to do this across the board, but I can look at this particular situation and say, hey, this person, for whatever reason, has really connected with me, but those four hours I spent with her you know, listening and talking yesterday have really left me just mentally drained. I can't do that today. Can I say that? And I say, yes. Learning to state your limits and say, hey, you know, I want to be here to spend time with you. Can we talk for the next 15 minutes? And then I'm going to have to get up and do whatever. Uh, Maybe I can't say that to that person. Maybe they aren't receiving that. But that's where that communication with my team comes in. Communication is powerful. And mm-hmm. understanding that you don't have to be there alone so that even if it's telling whoever you're working with, in 15 minutes, can you give me a call? Or can you come check to make sure we're okay? Or do you mind sitting with me for a little while with this person? Can you come see if you're seeing what I'm seeing? So that, you know, we're all kind of on the same page. So communicating your limits, communicating your boundaries, helping yourself kind of find those boundaries. And something that we are constantly working on at the respite is passing on useful information to whomever is coming on next. How do we do that warm handoff? 
so that, you know, maybe the person, you know, they were okay, but I could tell they were, you know, they're, they were getting louder and it was harder for them to stay in their rooms and it looks like they're going to be pacing back and forth. But when you play their favorite rock song, they love it. And, and we actually had a guest where that was the case. Him and one of the staff members, they connected over some metal music and I'm glad for them because that is not my cup of tea, but they, (laughs) that was his thing. As long as he could hear his song and he would pace and listen to that and she let him take her phone and he'd go out on the patio and he would just blast it and then he'd come back in and maybe 15 minutes later he'd ask for another song and, and then it became them, them sharing songs. So it's hard sometimes when everything is going on, but realizing that there's a person underneath the symptoms, there's a person underneath the distress, there's a person behind there, that's the person. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to see through that, especially when you're feeling all of your stuff come up, because typically what happens when we're fearful, we want to clamp down and own the power. I want to call somebody. I want to, you know, I want to rein this in. I want you to stop being loud and stop pacing and stop, you know, telling me there's someone out there following you. There's no one following you. Well, no, I, I can't. <laughs> That's not helpful in that moment, but that's what comes up. And so the other knowledge or skill, it is about self-care. It really is. It is about when you have a tough time, when you're at your limit, being able to state state that and take a breather, take your break, take your lunch, walk away, put in some music, meditate, something to give yourself some some care because it can be a lot. And something we do as a team, we have huddles usually twice a day, usually in the morning and uh, when the next shift comes on and we kind of process like, okay, what's, what's going on today? What was really hard? And even after we had a really tough time with the guest, we kind of came back together and it's like, okay, let's debrief. Let's, let's talk about what was challenging for us. And staff is sharing and they're sharing their perspectives and but then we learned that hey we we did some good stuff because we talked across shifts to each other I shared what helped me when I was working with this person and now this other person tried that and it helped them mm-hmm. there aren't really concrete practical skills I can just say yes this 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 every single time <laughs> but I know those things you know the self-care, the setting limits, the knowing your boundaries and knowing your, your agencies, your organization's protocols, you can't go wrong starting with those things every time. Yeah, that's a fantastic list. One of the first questions that we were putting out on the table, Laura and I, was, does motivational interviewing have a place in helping peers manage crisis. I think through conversations with you, Stephanie, and just going back and forth, for me, it's a resounding yes. So Laura, Mm. what do you think about that? (laughs) I mean, listening to Stephanie and and so many things about the, the intentionality of MI, 
um, you were talking about being in a intentional peer and, and MI is a definitely an intentional practice and there's lots of things about the style and spirit of motivational interviewing that could be beneficial as peers try to be the best peer that they can be in helping another person navigate crisis and so things that came up as I was listening were you know autonomy and recognizing that this person has control of their own life that they are the expert on their own life and I think it's empowering to the person and it's very protective of the peer helper, right? Like I, it is not my job to, to change this other person. Like I, my job is to guide them to do my best, Mm. but they are ultimately in control of everything in their own life. And I don't have to change them. The other thing that goes along with that is supporting collaboration and being collaborative with them. And again, looking at this person as this person is my partner. I'm going to share risks and responsibilities. I'm not the boss of them. Again, I can't make them do anything. So I I heard those things come out really loud and clear in what you were talking about, Stephanie. And I think it's, I think it's important to keep that in mind because if I'm owning so much of this person's experience and if, if I'm owning their choices, it, you know, you're going to get burned out very quickly doing this work. (laughs) If you're the fixer and the answerer (laughs) and you know, (laughs) you've got to know all the stuff and all the resources and even when you're sitting with the person, it's like, I don't know what to do right now. They are, why won't they just sit down? Why do they keep pacing? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Even when I don't know what to do when that's the case, when that happens, I just occasionally I will get up and I'll ask the person, you know, can I walk with you? I'm feeling kind of anxious right now. And sometimes they'll acknowledge that and sometimes not. And if they do, then, you know, we're walking, we're walking together. And uh, we had one person and they were, they wanted to start in one end of the hall. And it was something about us walking towards each other and we do a high five and, but keep walking. That's, that's all (laughs) they wanted to do, you know, but I was with them and that counts and, and that matters. So. So guiding rather than directing and, and being there right next yeah. to the metaphor of walking together or walking in the way that the person needs you to walk with them is really a, a really a yeah. cool visual. The other thing that you mentioned multiple times, Stephanie, is you said, you know, listening is powerful and don't underestimate the power of listening. And that for sure is mm. a crucial skill in motivational interviewing. You're, you're just not going to be able to do a single thing to help another person if you're not listening. And clearly you emphasize that. The other thing that goes along with listening that I heard was you said hearing what they're saying also heard what's not being said. And to me, that is the crux of empathy under, you know, looking at the world through another person's eyes, you know, recognizing that you have shared lived experience and yet let you, and yet your shared lived experience is unlikely to be exactly like this other person's lived experience. And so empathy is about saying, okay, well, how was it mm-hmm. for you? How is it for you right now? What's going on? What, what's, what are you not saying that I can, that I can through my listening and my ability to, mm. to project my imagination into somebody else's world, how can I mm. help you 
help clarify what you're feeling, what you're going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's important for people working with peers to understand that, yes, my lived experience is of this one particular experience. It's not all mental health diagnoses and all mental, you know, experiences. I don't know what to say either right now to this person. And I think sometimes as peers, we we take it on and we take on our roles very seriously and we feel like, oh my gosh, I failed that person. I wasn't able to cut through and reach them. Or it's hard to admit that their behavior right now is frightening to me because mm-hmm. I, 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 that, I don't do what they're doing. I don't know what that is. That's not my diagnosis. That wasn't my lived experience. So when that's not your lived experience, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Be with right. and listen. And when when you want to know something, chances are you can ask. Mm-hmm. You can ask those clarifying questions. You can say, well, what is that like? Or how does that feel? And, and in addition to, to questioning, you can also use the MI skill of reflection, letting the person know mm. that you're really working hard to understand them. You're not just you know, mm. they're in the corner thinking about them, you're working hard to understand mm. them. And when you, when you take the time to learn the art of reflection, you're saying to people, I'm working hard to understand you. What you're saying is important. I want you to keep talking to me. And all of that is implied when you get good at the skill of accurate reflections and deep reflections. People can, people feel differently when we reflect on the content that they're offering. Whether it's, what did you say? Whether it's what they're saying or what they're not saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and the last thing I want to offer from an MI perspective is, is that to think about that there are times when MI isn't appropriate. There, there may be protocols in place. Things may obviously mm-hmm. get to situations where people are not safe. And if, if you're not discussing behavior change, ambivalence around behavior change, that it just might not be a time. It might be a time to, to bring other evidence-based practices or protocols and bring those into action and delay the use of motivational interviewing. Certainly some of the skills that we've talked about, listening and being mm-hmm. empathic and reflecting are all very important skills, no matter how we're dealing with someone, but you might not be uh, necessarily t- talking about the the pros of changing your behavior, the cons of not changing your behavior when somebody's in a true emergency situation. So being willing to abandon your MI style, that's, that's what I have to offer about MI today. So I really appreciate all that you taught me about working with peers in crisis. Well, thank you. Something that came to mind when you were, as you were saying that, you know, about the times to use MI, it, I think if we're being, as peers, if when we're being trauma-informed and we're being person-centered, to just keep in mind that I can also let this person know what's going to happen. I have an obligation to do that. How can I support you? Is there something I can do with you while we wait for someone to come? Or just sort of letting them, letting the person know what's coming. I guess it goes back to that crisis being on the spectrum of wellness, that there are things I can do before a crisis to prevent one. There are things I can do during 
and there are things that I can learn and learn about myself maybe after the crisis. And when we have opportunities to kind of incorporate all of those things, they can feel a little less scary and the person can still feel like I have some choice. I have some control, some power, even in this moment where things feel very out of, out of control for me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Stephanie. This has been a great talk today. And I feel like we touched on a lot of really great skills. And we know that peers can work with individuals when they're experiencing a crisis. I like how you framed that on a continuum so that we see this pre-crisis during the crisis, and certainly afterwards, too. And I'm going to quote you from our last conversation, Stephanie, in wrapping this up today. You said, when I feel competent, it increases my confidence. Absolutely. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you both. I have enjoyed this. And for our listeners, you can come back and join us in our next episode, episode 10, which we'll be discussing valuing communication through active listening. This podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, which are funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this recording are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Thank you again for joining us on the Encouraging Change podcast. If you are a new listener, please follow us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes current YouTube channel to access many more free products and resources just like this. Thank you.